Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verses 4, Paul uses this complex phrase, the righteous requirement of the law. What is he talking about? We know that the law features all throughout the earlier chapters of the book of Romans, and most notably in chapter 7, where with his mind, the apostle agrees that the law of God is good. It is holy. It is righteous. It is pure. But then in chapter 8, he says this law and the righteous standard thereof can actually be fulfilled in the believers of Jesus the Christ. In chapter 7, Paul tries to fulfill this righteous requirement of the law, and he finds that he cannot live up to it. But by the Spirit, because of the work of Christ, in chapter 8, that righteous standard, that requirement is somehow fulfilled in us, by God, in Christ, by the Spirit. I want to explore this complex concept of the righteous requirement of the law and how is it applied to my life. And at the back end of this message, I want to fellowship some more regarding this mystical, complex phrase, the righteous requirement of the law. So stay tuned for a couple of practical tips at the back end. Paul uses a phrase here, rather interesting phrase, he says, The righteous requirement of the law can now be fulfilled in you. Previously, it could not be fulfilled. Now it can be fulfilled. So here's the issue. What is the righteous requirement of the law? In other words, what is the law all about? What's the the guts of of the law, if you will, the backbone. If we can boil it down to the irreducible minimum, what is God after, really, ultimately, with the law? Is it really that you have a squeaky clean life, or is there more to the law? If we can boil it down to maybe one commandment, one issue, what's the law all about? Is it just about sacrifices? Is is it just about all these priestly ordinances? Is it about the dietary laws? Is it really about all these principles for holiness and purity? In other words, if, if I can say it this way, if this is the standard of the law, 
And these are all the precepts and the principles and the ordinances and the commandments. Then we ask the question, what is really the righteous requirement? What does the law want from me? Is it to dress a certain way, cut my hair a certain way, anoint my ear with certain oils and certain incenses and sacrifices? Is that really what the law is about? The law is really about loving God. That really encapsulates all of the many stipulations. It boils down to this one issue, is to walk with God in a capacity of love. To receive the love of God and to love God. So, because of Christ's substitutionary death, His vicarious death on your behalf, somehow the love of God and loving God can be given to you. Paul already states this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where he says, The love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts. The love of God has been bestowed to you. It's been gifted to you. It's been endowed to you. And here he comes and he says, the righteous requirement of the law, the guts of the law, the issue of the law, is freely now given to you by the life-giving Spirit. In Romans 5 verse 5, he talks about the love of God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He gives you life. But He also imparts the law of God into you so that you now have this new heart and this new capability to actually love God, to walk with God and to obey God. It's no longer that I obey just the commandment. It's as though the commandment is written into my being so that with my heart and my mind and my soul and with all my strength and my devotion and all my focus, I am God Word. That's what the law was all about. It wanted for a people group to be fully God Word, not derailed to this God and to that God and to this culture, but to be a single culture and a single-minded people fully just devoted to God. To be in love with God, that's it. That's what the law is all about. Come with me to uh, Romans chapter 13. Flip over to Romans chapter 13 and look at verse 8. Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love them. This is apparently a debt that, that you owe all people. Love one another, for he who loves the other has fulfilled the law. For this issue that you shall not commit adultery... You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this issue, in this word, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the... There it is, in black and white. According to Paul's understanding of the law, it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's really a heart that is devoted to God. 
And here he says, all of the law is summed up in this issue. Love. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is interrogated by a lawyer there in verse 35. Now, a lawyer is somebody that was schooled and trained in the minutia of the law of Moses. He was a scholar of the scholars and an interpreter of the law. So in verse 35, this lawyer comes to him and he baits Jesus. And he says, teacher, verse 36, what say ye? What is the greatest commandment? What's the law really all about? And here it is in verse 37. The Lord said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets. So why did the prophets prophesy? It was because people's hearts went astray. They fell out of love with God and lived below the standard of the law. So why did the prophets prophesy? To provoke people back to the love of God. So here comes Paul and he says, You can now walk in the love of God because another man condemned sin in the flesh. Another man freed you from the power of sin and death. Now, your whole life can be devoted unto God. The law is actually fulfilled. Initially, the law wanted me to love God, but I had a problem, sin. Now Christ deals with the issue of sin, and now that law can live inside of me. And according to Paul, this law can now be inscribed into the very core of my being. I want you to go with me to Ezekiel 36. This issue of loving God and being consecrated and devoted and single towards the Lord, this has been an issue ever since Adam and the woman in the garden. Can a man be single towards God? Or is he going to be lured away with all sorts of rabbit trails? We know that the man and the woman in the garden were lured away by a rabbit trail. They lost their devotion to God. They lost their trust in God. And so they entertain other ideas. And this has been the plight of mankind. And so why did God give the law? There's many reasons, but here's one of them. The law was just to bring people back into focus. Because we all have just minds that go all over the place. And so God wanted a people group that can just be single-hearted towards Him and not have a multiplicity of gods and a multiplicity of, 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 of ways to worship God, but just one way, one heart, one mind towards God. So this was a big issue, the heart of man that goes astray. The prophet Jeremiah would say the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The book of Proverbs would say that we should guard our heart with all diligence because this heart is fickle and it's easily impressed with alternative ideas and 
So in the Old Testament, God gives the law, not just a bunch of regulations, but just kind of a guideline to stay focused, to stay single. Here comes the prophet Ezekiel, and he says in Ezekiel 36, in verse 26, he prophesies and he says, I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit, and I want to take away the heart of stone, that cold, wayward, distracted, and hardened heart. And God says here in verse 26, I want to give you a heart of flesh. The best way to interpret this is I want to give you a heart of tenderness. A heart that is touched by God and is single towards God. A heart that can love God. Apparently back in the Old Testament... The very people that were supposed to be single towards God and tender towards God, their hearts became cold and wayward. And so God would send them the law. God would send them the prophets to provoke them to come back to the love of God. And they just would not. They couldn't love God because of this issue of their flesh. Sin had so usurped the attention of man the love that was supposed to be poured out on God, that love cannot be poured out on God. So it's poured out on the self. It's poured out on the world. It's poured out on culture. It's poured out on the ego. It's poured out on the self-identity and self-will and hedonism and greed and covetousness. All that focus was supposed to be poured out on God. Love the Lord with all your heart. With all your soul, your mind, your strength. So God says here in verse 27, You know, I want to give you a heart, new spirit. He says, I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Notice how the spirit... And the walking out the law of God now goes hand in hand. In the Old Covenant, we may have tried to walk out the law, but it was weak through the flesh. God says, now I'm going to give you my spirit. And by the spirit, you, you will now live up and out this righteous requirement of God. By the spirit... The law will be transcribed in you. You'll have a new heart and you will be filled with the love of God. And that love of God will make me now walk out a single devotion and love and worship and adoration of God. This has been the issue in the Old Testament. So let me explain to you how difficult things were back there. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. So this people group that was supposed to have a heart for God, oh, this heart became so hardened, so wayward. Notice how Isaiah prophesies to the people of that time in verse 14. Well, let's pick it up in verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings, incense, 
is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of gatherings, I cannot bear iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. This is God speaking to His people. God who wanted festivals to make merry and celebrate and remember God and, in essence, love God. Now, it's all just a ritual. It's a performance. It's just an ordinance that they keep, but their heart has been derailed. So God says, I just, I hate your gatherings. I hate your, I hate your religiosities. All your performances, just going through the motion. Your heart is not in it. And this is the heart of the prophet Isaiah. Skip over to chapter 66. I'll read just a few verses here from verses 1 and onwards. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth the footstool for my feet. So where is the house that you will build for me? What temple? What edifice, what cathedral or shrine can you build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Where can I really dwell? All of the earth is mine. You can't squeeze me really into a house, a temple. Verse 2. All these things my hands have made. And so all these things have come into being, declares the Lord. But to this kind of a man will I look. In other words, to this kind of a man will I pay attention, and I might even want to dwell with this kind of a man. I don't want to dwell with a temple. I want to dwell with a man. And this is the man now, verse 2, he says, To him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Somebody who is inwardly tender towards God. Somebody's heart who is given to God. So we, we, we can deduce from this prophecy here that in that time, the temple was the place where God was supposed to dwell. And some people would build a shrine here and an edifice here. And God was like, stop, 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 stop. I just want your heart. That's where my place of rest is. That's where I want to live. That's what the law is really all about. In verse 3, the Lord really uh, paints a picture for us through the prophet Isaiah. He who kills an ox, you know, for sacrifice, is like a, a person who slays a man. In other words, he says, your sacrifice that you bring as a kind of a ritual, it's as though you murdered a man. Your heart is so cold and lifeless. He says, he who sacrifices a lamb... Is like him who breaks a dog's neck. As you're bringing this kind of a ceremonial sacrifice to God in the temple, but in your heart you're as vile and as decadent as a man who just breaks a dog's neck. Merciless, without tenderness. He says, The person who brings a meal offering is like him who actually offers the blood of pigs to me. 
the Lord really insults their religious works, their performances, their ceremonies, their festivals, their rituals. He says, he who burns incense, you know, the law prescribes that you burn incense, is like him who blesses an idol. He's basically saying, your worship is idolatry. It's cruel, it's lifeless, it has no heart in it. And this is the burden of Isaiah. What can be done for these people? Their heart is not loving God. Come with me to the book of Hosea. Hosea prophesies regarding the people, uh, notably in the northern kingdom, that their heart, their devotion, their tender contriteness before God is just gone. Notice how Hosea says it from uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and onwards. And notice the word lovers and husband. These are suggestions as to what God wants from His people. Verses uh, 10, And now I will uncover her lewdness, her loose living, in the sight of her lovers. And no one will deliver her from my hand. And I will bring all her joy and celebration to an end. Her festivals, her new moons, her Sabbaths. You know, these are all celebrations within the Jewish culture. God says, all of her appointed gatherings and assemblies. And I will desolate her vine and her fig tree. Of which she said, these are my payments that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. And I will visit the days of the balls upon her, these false gods, in which she burned incense to them, and adorned herself with her nose rings and her jewels, and went after her lovers, and she forgot me. It's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. But you get the idea God wanted to be the husband, the lover. And so she, the nation, the northern uh, part of that nation, would go after other lovers and take their nose rings and their practices. In other words, the heart was not for God. There was a desperate need for a new heart. Here it is in verse 14. Therefore, I am now luring her. And I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak to her heart. Something's wrong with this nation's heart. And I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will respond there as in the days of her youth. And as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will no longer be called Bali, the name of a false god. You will now call me husband. And I will take away the names of the balls from her mouth, and they will no longer be remembered by their name. And I will make a covenant for them in that day with the beasts of the field and with the birds of heaven and the creeping things on the earth. And bow and sword and battle I will break from the land and I will cause them to lie down in safety. These are all prophetic pictures of what God wants to do within His people. It says, verse 19, 
I will betroth you to myself forever. Indeed, I will betroth you to myself in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and compassions. Indeed, I will betroth you to myself in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they will answer the earth and the earth will answer the grain and the new wine and the fresh oil, etc., etc. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And he gives her several names. The prophetic suggestion here is that Israel has married other lovers. And their heart, their single devotion to God has been lost. So here comes Paul. He says, all of us in a way have gone astray like sheep. There's no one that really does good. There's no one who really seeks after God. We've all sinned and, and fallen short. And we're all under condemnation. And we cannot love God. We try to love God before we can blink. We're in idolatry. We're in self-worship. And Paul's like, here's the gospel. You can do nothing. You can't change your heart. You really can't love God. You can't. But Christ will die for you. Christ will give you the life-giving spirit. He'll create a new heart and a new spirit within you. And that law will now correspond to your new heart. What part of the law? What? All these principles? No. The issue of your heart. The issue of love. Go to Amos chapter 5. And so the Old Testament covenant that was supposed to keep a people devoted, single, because of this entity of sin, this issue of sin, they went all over the place. And I submit to you, you and I can live a loose, idolatrous, wayward, cold, apathetic life if we don't live in the Spirit. If we keep living in the flesh... Your heart will be divided. But if we live in spirit, the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. What is that righteous requirement? A single heart of devoted love to the husband, Almighty God. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, it says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I will not delight in your solemn gatherings. For if you offer up to me burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept your works anymore. Nor will I regard the peace offerings of your fatted animals. Take the noise of your music away from me. For I will not hear the melody of your harps. In other words, stop singing songs to me. Stop dancing in front of me. Stop celebrating. Is God against us dancing? No. Is God against our songs? No. The issue here with the prophet is he's exposing the condition of their heart. You're just going through the motions. 
you're just doing what comes natural. You're now in this Jewish culture and the celebrations is just a part of your life. But your heart is far from me. So that's why Ezekiel had to prophesy a new heart. So that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. So here's the issue. If you have received the Holy Spirit because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then by default, according to prophecy, you also received a new spirit and a new heart. A new spirit to contact God and fellowship with God, but a new heart to be single, focused, devoted. The type and shadow is that of a husband and wife. The husband and wife who enter into the covenant, they are single towards each other. They are focused on each other. And this is apparently, according to Paul, what life in the Spirit is all about. We should be able to now love God. So no longer am I under the law's condemnation. I'm now under the law's righteous requirement, which is to love. So now I can walk with God. And Jesus then comes a step further. He says, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, you'll obey my commandment. Why? Because it's written on your heart. The Spirit supplies you with power and grace and anointing. So now you can actually be single, devoted, focused, with a tender heart towards the Lord. It's as though Jesus doesn't want songs from us. It's as though He doesn't really care about our worship meetings and our celebrations and our gatherings. It's as though He cares about a contrite heart and an inner man that is tender towards Him and an ear that inclines towards Him. That was the righteous requirement of the law. A people who would hear God, obey God. So can I ask, in our modern spiritual lives, are you and I a people that have a heart for God? Or have we also become like those who are just hardened? Yet we go through the motions. We can sing a song and we can clap and raise a hand. But when God says, go hug that man, forgive that man, or whatever commandment he may give, can you actually do it? That is what he is after. Let me close with a difficult passage in Matthew 13. Again, this is the Lord, and he is quoting the prophet Isaiah, who spoke regarding the issues of the heart. In Matthew 13, the Lord tells all these parables. And it's a much deeper context than what I have currently time to relate to you. But the Lord speaks in mysteries now and in parables to His audience. Because He discerned His audience really don't care to, to walk with Him, to maybe obey, to, to do what He says. And he's going to quote the, the prophet Isaiah. 
in Matthew 13, um, the disciples ask in verse 10, Why do you speak in parables? Why are you so mysterious? And the Lord says, basically, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, but to them it has not been given. Then, in verse 13, if you skip forward just a little bit, For this reason I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they don't see. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, even if I speak plainly, point A, point B, point C, even if I'm so clear, they just don't listen. They don't see. He says, they don't see, and they don't hear, and they don't understand. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, why bother? Why even bother to, to talk to people who don't listen? Then he quotes the prophecy from Isaiah. They shall by no means understand, and they shall by no means perceive. Look at verse 15. For the heart of this people has become fat. Your Bible may say hard or dull. And with their ears they have heard heavily. In other words, it's a Hebrew idiom for their ear is not quick to hear. They really don't want to listen. And their eyes they have closed so that they don't see, perceive, understand, and hear. So this is the Lord's Word, and it was true in Isaiah's day. It was true in Hosea's day. It was true in Amos's day. It was true in Jeremiah's day. It was true in Ezekiel's day. It was true in Christ's day. And it's still the issue to this day. Can God gain my heart? Because that is really what the law is after. The law wanted to capture your heart and put you on a single track mind of faithfulness to God, worship to God, betrothing marriage to God. This is what the law is about, to love God with all of your heart. So here comes Paul, and he says, this actually is now accomplished because of Christ. But aha, there is a condition. There's a little bit of a caveat. If you remain in the flesh, this love of God, this requirement of single devotion to God cannot be fulfilled. That's why you'll see if you walk in the flesh, you, you derail. But if you mind the Spirit, you will experience the love of God. You will love God and the law will be fulfilled. And you'll never, ever experience condemnation. This is the gospel. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's one more passage regarding the law that I want to point out in 1 Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to pick up in verse 5. So Paul writes to Timothy and he says in verse 5, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, notice carefully, the end of the commandment is 
love. We presume that Paul is talking in verse 5 about the law of Moses, the commandment, because verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, he's going to talk about the law. So he says, the end of the charge, the end of the commandment, is, is love out of a pure heart. It's, 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 it's very meaningful that he puts the word pure heart. Because it's possible to have a divided heart. It's possible to have a heart that derails, that's contaminated. So he says, what's the law really all about? To love God with sincerity, with pureness, not with mixture. Okay? So he says, with a pure heart and a good conscience. Well, how can you have a good conscience in the law? Because when you try to keep the law, you're going to keep breaking it and your conscience gets accused and condemned because you're going to be weak in the flesh. But I believe Timothy understood Romans. I believe Timothy understood the gospel that Christ died for me to impart the righteous requirement of the law to me in spirit. The spirit poured out the love of God in my heart and the law in that love and that, that, that single pure heart. So now I can walk with God and have a great conscience. I can have a good conscience. This is a byproduct of the new covenant. So he says, a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned faith. A faith that's not wishy-washy, iffy-iffy. These are all descriptions of pureness, of singleness, of, of focus. He says in verse 6, from these things, some have misaimed, some have derailed, and they have turned to vain talking. Verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law. So that's why I think verse 5 is in reference to the law, because now he explains these people are trying to teach the law, but they don't understand the things that they say, nor the things that they confidently affirm. So yeah, a lot of people were teachers of the law. Even today, we have teachers of the law. And Paul is like, basically, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Because for him, the law was not just anymore just ordinances. He got to the heart of the matter. The law is to regulate your heart in the love of God. And love means devotion. It means betrothal, singleness. And that's why the prophets use the metaphor of marriage often, talking about the people. You have like a whore slept around, gone after the balls and false gods. You've committed spiritual adultery. The prophets use that imagery nonstop. And Paul comes to understand, no, the way that the law is really to be taught is that you love God. But how? By the Spirit who puts it in you. So here he accuses people of teaching the law, but they really don't have a clue what's, what's in it or the heart of it, etc., etc. And he says there in verse 5, the commandments end goal. This is, this is the righteous requirement. This is the standard. The end goal is love. So he says these people, they teach the law and uh, they don't have a clue. Then he goes in verse 8, he says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then uh, he goes into the law some more, etc., etc.
Well, there you have it. The righteous requirement of the law is agape love. It's one thing, love. In the Old Testament, there were 613 commandments, mitzvot, regulations, ordinances to regulate people in the love of God, the love of people, and the love of self. If you were a Pharisee, in Jesus' day, you would have added 2,000 additional laws to make sure you didn't break the 613. And then there's Jesus and Paul, who both crystallizes the law into really one commandment, love God, and the second, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I have three things for you to meditate on And I would ask that you just be before the Lord a little bit regarding this issue of agape. Is your heart really towards God? Number two, is your heart really towards man? And number three, is your heart really towards your own self? Well, first, about God. Apparently, the Spirit of God has been given to us to pour the love of God into us. And then from that reservoir of love within us that was given to us in the first place, we can love God back. But what does it mean to love God back? Well, in the Old Testament, to love God was to live a consecrated life to God. And in the New Testament, loving God is often associated with obedience. In the Old Testament, loving God meant I avoided the world, I avoided um, spiritual adultery, other gods and other practices, and I stayed single towards God. In the New Testament, often the love of God is coupled with the word obedience. So here's my question. If the love of God is in you, do you live a consecrated life and an obedient life? Those two together is an expression of the love of God within you. The love of God was not given to you so that you could have goosebumps and you can have just esoteric, rapturous experiences. When the hair on the back of your body stands up, that's not necessarily the love of God. The love of God is given to you to be excitement within you, energy within you endurance within you to consecrate and to obey. Consecration means just even though you have a car, even though you have a job and you have a spouse, nevertheless, the entirety of your being is to God. God is the treasure. And you, in a way, have sold off everything to buy that field in which that treasure is. God is the treasure. And so, We cannot be worldly people with ego and chasing after mammon and and success and notoriety and the spotlight and say that we love God. Because in a way, you lose your consecration. When you grasp for the world and for God, you're like Solomon. Solomon was a person who, in a way, straddled the fence. And he thought, you know, I can have the world and the things of this world. And yeah, I can have God. Beloved, to 
To love God, on the one hand, is to be utterly consecrated. No doubt we have money and the affairs of this world to, to, to fulfill our calling and our mission and take care of our spouses and our children. But none of those things occupy my excitement, my energy, or my endurance. It's not my treasure. God is my treasure. And how do you know God is your treasure? Well, what comes out of your mouth? If cars and women and jobs and money and salary and success and the latest, greatest, if all of those things come out of your mouth, then surely that's the treasure in your heart. If God comes out of your mouth... If God is honored and adored and worshipped and spoken of often, then surely He is the treasure of your heart. And it's an indication that you are consecrated to God. It's not wrong to talk about this, that, and the other, but with what excitement do you talk about God versus, let's say, football, soccer, or some sport, some superstar? some political party, if the intensity with which you speak regarding politics versus God outweighs, then surely politics is your treasure, the world is your treasure, and you are living an unconsecrated life. But furthermore, how do you know you love God? Well, do you do what He says? Do you obey? That's really the word of the Lord, especially in John's gospel, chapter 14 and 15 and 16. He speaks often about, if you love me, then you'll obey me. To obey me is to love me. Beloved, when God speaks to you and wants to rid this in your life and send you here and use you in this way or grace you with the Holy Spirit gifting in that way, do you obey? That really is proof that you love God. If you walk in flesh, you will not be consecrated. If you walk in your flesh, you will not obey. God will not be your treasure. So Paul says, if you walk in spirit, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you, and you will live consecrated, and you will live obedient. But can I ask you number two? Do you love your neighbor? Really? Do you love the people you rub shoulders with? Your spouse, your children, the man who lives next to you and across the street from you, the people at your school, the people at your work. Um, do you just get along with them? Or do you really actually seek their best? Do you believe the best about them? Do you think the best about them? Do you hope the best about them? Do you suffer along with their quirky personalities? Do you forgive up to 70 times 7 and some? See, it's one thing to fake it with your neighbor, but God has given us agape love so that we can actually bear with people, endure with people. We can keep no record of wrong. We can actually love our neighbor. And my observation is that if each believer in Jesus the Christ takes care of their neighbor, our towns will be radically different. Love the man and the woman you rub shoulders with next to you. The environment in which you live 
right there. Let the love of God flow. I mean, it's easy to love that person from that political party or that particular sports team. But it's altogether a different thing to love the person who's not like me, who doesn't see things like me, who has a different past experience than me, a different upbringing, a different worldview. This is really the righteous requirement of the law. It's not for us to compromise, not for us to let go of our consecration, but to really, yeah, care for people. Number one, love God. Number two, love people. Number three, do you love yourself? Do you agape yourself or do you condemn yourself, accuse yourself, belittle yourself? Do you curse yourself? And speak derogatorily of yourself. And when you compare yourself to those folk on social media that have it all. And they look so perfect with their blonde hair and their muscled, tanned bodies. And do you envy? And in the process, are you discontent with yourself? Do you compete with others? Compare yourself with others? Beloved, when you lay down at night... Are you okay with the person God created and the personality you have? And I'm not saying we should all just stay the same. Hey, this is who I am. Just deal with it. I know there's growth. We all grow. We all are in the process of sanctification. But at the base of it, do you despise yourself? Do you hate yourself for the mistakes you've made? Do you have grace and mercy even for yourself? Because believe it or not, in the agape love of God, there is grace and mercy not just for the world, but also for me and for you. Beloved, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us when we walk in spirit. You'll see that if you walk in the spirit, you won't damn yourself. You will not curse yourself. If you walk in the flesh, you'll do those things over and over and over again. And as you curse yourself, yes, the lifeblood will just flow out of you. Hope flows out of you. It just leaks out and you just energy goes by the wayside and you'll just, in a way, collapse in depression and in disdain for yourself. And there are so many people who have such disdain for their own selves, even Christian people, that they take their own life. We've been given the love of God, not only to love God, to love our neighbor, but also to love that unlovely part of ourselves. But here's the contingency. You and I have to set our mind on the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And this is how this rich agape love of God will realize within us. So there you have it. A rather complex term, the righteous requirement of the law, but it boils down to the agape love of God.